Well, welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk. I'm Sarah. I'm Steve. And I'm Erica. And we are just sort of getting into a new series. We began last time taking a look at the thorny but important conversational topic of Christian nationalism and the reality of what happens when um, we conflate uh, our faith as Christians with a particular national identity. Uh, Last time we, we tried to lay some groundwork, taking a look at what's the difference between a generally positive thing called patriotism, where you can love your country and also tell the truth about it. Uh, and then a more dangerous thing of nationalism, where you are not able to bear critique or sort of have an emotional insecure reaction to when somebody points out dangers or problems. And then we talked last about Christian nationalism is what happens when we conflate uh, the Christian faith with a particular national identity and that they are almost one of the same or overlapping. So where are we going to go today, having laid that groundwork? So today we're going to look at what scripture says about Christian nationalism or just religious nationalism in, in general, because if we're looking at the Old Testament, they weren't Christians yet. And so we're going to take a look at kind of the theocracy that happens in the Old Testament for a minute of Israel's history in which they are ruled by God and a king and it all kind of gets mixed in together and we're also going to spend some time looking at the New Testament and see what the New Testament has to say about how Christians are to live in a world um, and relate to whatever government that they are living with under in however you want to phrase that um, idea so let's start with the Old Testament yeah, um, and maybe we should say not just because it comes first in our Bibles, but because when the conversation about how uh, civil life and religious life intersect, uh, often folks will say, well, look, Old Testament Israel was very clearly a theocracy, mm-hmm. and it's in our Bibles that there was an official right religion and that there is uh, there were national laws that had criminal punishments and things that were all governed with faith in Yahweh. So therefore, it gets extrapolated. Isn't that how things are supposed to be? Or isn't that the ideal? And we're somehow settling for less in a country that says it's got freedom of religion, that kind of thing. Is, is it at least fair to say, have you, have you heard that kind of argument before? Yeah. Yeah. Um... I have, and I've always questioned if those people actually have read the Old Testament, (laughs) if they think that in any way, ancient Israel's government structure is ideal. (laughs) So when we talk about the the theocracy, I keep wanting to say theocracy, that's something totally different. Uh, (laughs) That's a different kind of word we won't get into today. But the theocracy of Israel in, in, in scripture and what we read about it was not God's plan first and foremost like the people were complaining you know you had you know you had the genesis and then you have you know abraham and then you get to moses and in exodus and egypt and all that and i know i'm skipping a bunch of huge chunks of the old testament people get into the promised land and they have judges for a while some are good some are bad but they all kind of eventually retire or die and then people start complaining they want kings because everybody around them has kings and they want to have a king. And God tells them outright, you do not want this. This will not end well for you. But because you keep pestering me, I'm going to give you a king. Yeah. And when we read the story of the kings outside of David, who 
has his own faults. Don't get me wrong. He's got plenty of faults of his own. Not a lot of them are really good. Right. It, it always kind of reminds me of when my kids are bugging me and bugging me that they want to climb up on this thing on the playground and jump off of it. And I keep telling them, this is a bad idea. You're going to get hurt. Don't do this. But they keep bugging me, keep bugging me, keep bugging me until finally I'm just like, okay, try it. But I'm guessing it's going to hurt when you land on those wood chips. And, you know, sure enough, it does hurt. They regret it. But then they stop jumping off of the thing. This, to me, is not only one of those things I'm wrestling with as a parent of children who are increasingly doing dangerous things or foolish things that will have consequences, but it's given me a whole new window into, like, how God must, like, feel about us all the time. You know, like, we are constantly the ones going, I'm going to do this, and I'm, I can do whatever I want, and God's like, please don't, that's a bad idea, and, you know, then we get upset when we get, well, why didn't you tell me, God? Mm, I did. <laughs> um, it's the face palming guardian angel. Me. Right, 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and even for that matter, it's the, you know, when Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem, you know, how many times I would have gathered mm-hmm. you like a hen to a brood and you wouldn't let me, there's this heartbrokenness and this vulnerability in God of like, I have warned you. And if I, you know, zapped you with lightning every time you're about to do something dangerous, you would say I was being unfair or wouldn't, you know, so like, fine, I will let you do things this mm-hmm. way, but you'll see. And hopefully in, in enough hindsight or with enough time, you'll see why this was a bad choice that you were making. Um, but even that, I mean, that in, in a way that does get in a conversation one day when we do have a talk about theodicy, about why bad things happen. So even though it's different from theocracy, it is, it is worth noting part of part of God's response sometimes to our being stinkers or our rebelliousness is to say, fine, I will let you see the consequences of your choices and you'll see why this terrible thing mm-hmm. was a terrible thing after all. But it, yeah, like it, it's worth noting, even where you get something like a theocracy in the Old Testament, it's not God decreeing this is the best thing ever, but more God going, you are not going to like this. This is going to turn out badly for you, but fine. And I will walk with you even when you do stupid things. So so part of this narrative, though, is that the ancient Israel nation was very nationalistic, mm-hmm. that they viewed themselves as God's chosen people. Um, and that's how they're like referred to throughout the Old Testament. Um, and that God is their God and they are God's people and that this is a special elevated relationship. And this is all fine and dandy, especially during the Kings, even though most of the Kings weren't that good. Um, but it becomes a real problem after a couple of Kings down the line, Israel as a nation split into two kingdoms right? There's now the North Kingdom and the South Kingdom. Um, and now they both view themselves as God's chosen people, God's chosen nation. And what happens when there are two different groups, two different nations who view themselves through this very nationalistic lens with the same God and essentially the same religion? You know, problems are going to arise and run amok yeah and by the time you get to the early new testament like jesus having that conversation with a samaritan woman in john 4 and the differences have hardened into a we worship on this mountain and you worship on that mountain and so like there's a clearly we're not exactly the same uh but there's enough overlap that yeah it's well what, what do we what do we make of these people who are not identical with us but we've developed a national identity of us and versus them kind of a thing yeah 
I mean, it's so severe that they don't even see themselves as worshiping the same God or being in the same religion. Like, mm-hmm. like they've completely divorced themselves and they are incapable of seeing themselves as, you know, children of God. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's it's helpful too that if if we're going to do an honest read of even the most theocratic moments of Israel's history, that was always meant to be open up to critique from God of you can get it wrong. And when you do get it wrong, I will remind you, I will send prophets to tell you, I will Mm -hmm. not always be on the side of your military. If you keep turning away from me, I will be on the side of the foreign nations armies when you go to war. Um, And that God would say consistently throughout that, throughout that time, I reserve the right to care about the people in other nations and their well-being also. So you get prophets, you know, uh, in our old Testament during the reign of Kings, uh, not only saying um, uh, the problem is we aren't following God's rules well enough, but saying things like we aren't treating our, our neighbor nations rightly or neighbor nations, you need to get your act together as well. That God's concern for other nations always was this huge qualifier on even the most nationalistic moments of ancient Israel saying God does not only care about one country and God's will is not for that one country to conquer all the world, but that God cared about every. And in fact, you get those visions from even at the height of Israel's national um, sort of theocracy, visions of all nations will one day be gathered to be, you know, uh, in God's reign or, you know, that God will into the peaceable kingdom um, of, you know, the, the people not learning war anymore. That's not the image of we will conquer everybody but we will beat our weapons into into plowshares and not have to kill each other anymore so even at its most nationalistic there was this these huge qualifiers that didn't say uh israel right or wrong but when we weren't right we need god to correct us and change us and challenge us so that's maybe we could say the 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 broad swath of ancient israel's experience in the old testament although we could also add once they come back from exile, they are never in power through the whole rest of the story of the Old mm-hmm. Testament. And uh, even into the centuries before Jesus' arrival in the New Testament era, it's living under the rule of foreign domination. And that might not have been pleasant or fun, um, but clearly they had to figure out how to live and hold on to their identity when they weren't in power uh, and couldn't make all the laws, that kind of thing. But when you arrive in the New Testament scene and the Christian community is now figuring out how to be a community beyond just 12 former fishermen and their friends, um, how do do they begin to wrestle with how they relate to civil government or civil life? Well, I, I think that part of not being in power is pretty central to the identity of first century Jews and then therefore first century Christians. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, second century and third century Christians that the view of themselves, their identity is as a marginalized small group who are being persecuted by the reigning government of the day, Rome. Mm -hmm. Um, That you know, they're being fed to lions. They're actively being hunted and crucified and executed for being Christian. So that's pretty central to their identity because that's not stopping them from being Christian. Sometimes they have to be secret. They have to hide where they are meeting. They had a whole like 
symbol thing going on with like their you know they would put that fish symbol on their doorpost so that other christians would know oh this is a place where we can meet and worship but don't tell anybody you like you have to be an insider to know the whole symbol code um to be able to be safe so that Rome wouldn't find your place of worship, which was in people's houses so that people wouldn't be executed, but people were being executed. People were being fed to lions and crucified. And um, so that was pretty central to their identity of we are a persecuted people. We are a marginalized people. And uh, the government isn't necessarily our friend, but we aren't trying to overthrow the government. We aren't trying to um, resist the government. We're trying to peacefully live faithful lives in our community. We're not separating ourselves. We are just trying to peacefully coexist yeah. And I, I do think, oh, go ahead, Erica. I was going to say, and where do they get that idea from? But Jesus himself. Yeah, exactly. You know, like Jesus comes in and I'm thinking, you know, of Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, everything. He comes in on a donkey. Everybody's expecting him to take over Rome. Right. And he never does. Right, right, right. Well, and I, I think too, at the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, and it makes a huge difference how you read the Sermon on the Mount. Mm-hmm. If you're assuming you're in a position of power, it makes very little sense to say, why would any, why would I, how could anyone compel you to walk a mile? Like, but if you're living under Roman domination and it's the Roman soldiers and police force who are requiring ordinary Judean citizens to carry their pack for them, like the, the, the Sermon on the Mount only makes sense in the way Jesus intended it. If you're in a position of, we aren't holding the power, the levers of power, and how do we survive as the people of God when we don't have power? And what seems interesting to me is that nowhere in the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus saying, and now we've got to you know, overthrow, or now we've got to launch our revolution, and there's a storm coming, we got to take it over. But more like, no, we we will live as this, as this small as, as there's a line of uh, Stanley Hauerwas's uh, of being God's countercultural option that like the, the the early Christian community is meant to be this small different kind of voice that was distinctive and didn't try and pretend to take over everything but mm-hmm. was this like like salt right you don't want everything to taste like salt but salt makes everything else that it's in better um so that distinctive small entity or like yeast and dough, again, like those images from Jesus parables only make sense if the assumption is the Christian community is this small marginalized presence whose, whose job is to improve the life of the whole, not to dominate the whole. Um, and I think, again, sometimes that's lost on us when we are used to expecting we who are Christians should be calling the shots and in charge. Mm-hmm. I, I think, too, this is another one of those sad tragedies that much like ancient Israel, even when they were at their most um, uh, theocratic, written into the Torah was you remember what it was like to be the, on the underside. You remember what it was like to be the immigrant or the enslaved ones. And you remember how terrible it was when you were dominated and oppressed by Pharaoh. So don't be that. And that's over and over and over again in the Torah. And how much in the early Christian witness there should be this. You remember what it's like to be on the underside of power. So when you get power, if you do get it, don't start oppressing other people who aren't like you. You need to make sure there's room for breathing space for people who do not share your faith or your perspective. Much like ancient Israel was supposed to, but kept forgetting that, you know, and I think that that's maybe one of the tragedies of Christian history as well, is that 
while we were the the minority, sometimes persecuted and sometimes just you know treated like we didn't matter. Um, we could hold on to that. Yeah, we have to make sure to look out for other people who are you know, being stepped on or you know, treated like they don't matter. And so the early Christian witness in the first several centuries, you know, it, it caught on like wildfire among the enslaved and among women mm-hmm. and people who were treated like they didn't matter by the empire and by Greco-Roman society. Because here is a group that said, but you do matter to God and you are important and you don't have to be the emperor or uh, the, the uh, imperial uh, uh, so-and-sos to matter. And then once we got adopted by the empire as the, the official re- religion of the state, it became really easy to start saying, but the people we don't like, we can start killing, right? Man, we started doing that. I've said for years, that's the biggest mistake in Christianity and Christian history. Yeah. It's when we became the state religion. Um, it, it, it maybe is, is worth noting too, that as, as uncomfortable as it can make us sometimes, there are places in the New Testament that speak highly of secular authority or civil authority, and they are not talking about Christians in public office. They're talking about a pagan Roman emperor. So when Paul in what we call Romans 13 is talking about how, uh, you know, temporal authorities, you know, are there to restrain evil and stop wickedness, and that it's, he's not calling for violent revolution against Rome there. He's saying, you know, let let them do what they're supposed to do to maintain order, and you know, don't don't try and blow that up. Um, he's not talking about a Christian emperor. He's talking about an emperor that has also repeatedly thrown him in jail and would be responsible for his own trial. Um, so again, like the 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 assumption of the New Testament isn't Christians should be in power because we're always better or right or smarter or more virtuous, but rather we're called to live faithfully wherever we are. And not only is it okay if we are not the ones calling the shots are in power the new testament assumes it that we are not and i think it's also we we talked last time about marks of maturity yeah and this is i think a moment for paul being very mature yeah and being able to recognize both the good that the roman empire can do as well as the evil right Mm -hmm. and because by all means the roman empire at times was evil yeah and it was often depending on who was in charge um but you know there were a lot of just terrible ways that they executed people and lots of people who maybe didn't even deserve it like they didn't you know shouldn't have been executed sure they did nothing wrong um people were oppressed and invaded and horrible, horrible things. But the Roman Empire also gave the road system, they gave clean drinking water, they um, introduced lots of forms of education and law and order in places that maybe didn't have it. Like, they did a lot of good as well. And once they were like there and in a place, they did provide for the people and you know so like for Paul I think this is definitely a moment of maturity and recognizing that yeah these people are occupying us but that doesn't mean that we should revolt and try to gain our independence because they're here this is this is the situation we're living in this we can live like this 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 can work and in some ways, it seems like he's drawing on, there's this passage from uh, uh, Jeremiah when he's writing to the people who are living under mm-hmm. Babylonian exile, and instead of, we should fight the Babylonians and kill them all, like, it, no, 
seek the city, the welfare of the city where you've been, you know, so if you're in exile, you know, look, look for its welfare. So instead of trying to burn it all down, this is where you're at right now. And you can live without being in power. That's okay. And again, remember what it's like not to be the ones in power and remember what it was like, um, you know, uh, one day, if you are in power again, remember what it's like to be, you know, at the mercy of other people who have power. Uh, but Paul seems to be in that same vein of it, it's, it's okay not to be the ones calling the shots. How do we, how do we learn to live in that, that situation? And it's not just learning to live under that, but I keep coming back to first Timothy too those first four verses where it you know paul's writing to timothy first then first of all then i urge you supplications prayers intercessions and thanksgiving be made for everyone for kings and all who are in high positions so that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life and in all goodliness and dignity this is right and acceptable in the sight of god our savior like we're not just supposed to live under these rulers we're supposed to pray for them sure Sure. And I think that's something we miss out on a lot. Like we, I know I'm not very good at it. I won't speak for others. Well, and I think it's important to note when you talk about praying for them, that in none of those circumstances in the New Testament, were they talking about praying for their candidate to win an election because there weren't elections, you know, that like this, yeah. this wasn't like, sometimes that gets heard in American ears as pray for your leaders means we should pray for our party's leader to get elected when like, that's not at all what any of the New Testament writers imagine because nobody is, is voting for emperor. Um, mm-hmm. It's instead, here's the people in power you had no choice in pray that they would govern with wisdom and justice and, yeah. you know, and for well-being. Um, not, we only want someone from our group to be the ones in charge. I, I think it's, it's worth noting on a, on a similar line that in the early centuries, and you can see it some in the New Testament, but it's certainly clear in other early Christian writings, um, that the, the Christian community made a point not only of seeking the welfare of other Christians, but of seeking the welfare, the social welfare mm-hmm. of other people who did not share their faith and not just as a ploy of this will get them into our pews. We didn't have pews at that point. Um, But because they were convinced that's what it looked like to be the followers of Jesus living under someone else's empire. So you get, um, you know, writings in the, in the early, early, what are sometimes called the early apostolic fathers um, saying things like, you know, Christians are supposed to be known for seeking the well-being, the welfare of, of all people, not just, Christians. And one of my favorite um, uh, pieces of, of early Christian history comes from um, uh, the, the Roman emperor, uh, Julian the Apostate, who came at a point where he hated Christianity, was trying to turn the tide and fight back uh, against Christianity and restore the old former greatness of pagan Rome and the old you know, Roman gods. And he writes to one of his governors and says, these these Galileans, they're causing so much trouble because they're not only taking care of their own poor, they're taking care of ours as well. Um, and he hates the fact that the Christians are doing a better job of taking care of pagan Romans than the pagan Romans are. Um, and t- like to me, that that's really telling that the early Christians were known for the ways they cared for feeding and healing and taking care of not just themselves because they didn't just see it as you only matter if you belong to our group but you matter because God says you're, you're beloved. And that's, that's the role we're called to have in whatever society we're in is to be that presence of salt or yeast or light. I think of that passage from Acts yeah. where like the Greeks come. Mm-hmm. I don't remember what chapter it's in now, um, but the Greeks come complaining to, to the disciples, to the apostles saying, Hey, who's taking care of us. And they, they pull people right. from the community to take care of them. 
right, right. Um, these aren't other Jews, um, but they're, you know, they're part of the, it's a little bit different because they're part of the community. Right. Um, but still, like, it's, they're, they're not of the same nationality as most of the community. And I think point. that's another really important insight, because last time Sarah raised the point of how easy it is uh, in nationalistic impulses to sort of want the in-group to be homogenous, you know, one cultural background, one language, when this is our way of doing things, and we look out for ourselves. And the early church, especially as it, it first it had to do with language differences and cultural differences, and then eventually it became, are we letting Gentiles in? Are we letting Ethiopian eunuchs in? Are we letting Roman centurions in? And as it answered the question, it was, yes, this community isn't defined by a nationality or heritage or language any longer. We are called to be uh, not only open to, but intentionally inclusive of uh, people from every background and language and nation. And that was an intentional choice from the, the first generation of Christians to say, this is something different. And we are not going to be um, an ethnic, you know, an, an ethnic monolith. You know, we aren't going to be all identical. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, that's, that goes back to our conversation last time that religious nationalism isn't just bad for the state, but it's bad for Christianity too, because it sort of imposes this, we've all got to be homogenous when Christianity has made the choice from its beginnings of that's not who we're supposed to be. That's not who Jesus calls us to be. I think um, we need to continue on with this thread of history because the biblical perspective in a lot of ways is also a historical perspective, yeah. mm-hmm. but history does not stop after the final dot in the book of Revelation. <laughs> well, well said, well said. So next time then we'll take a look at how that story continues and how in the last say 2000 odd years, um, different experiments in Christian nationalism have gone and how different voices in Christian history have dealt with that, where it's gone wrong. And I don't know if we'll find any that have gone right, but at least some places we can learn um, as we continue in this conversation, exploring the where there be dragons in uh, Christian nationalism. Thanks everybody for joining us. See you you next time. Bye. Bye.